Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact? Ever After is proof that historical accuracy is tremendously overrated. It's a girly shit episode. It's a girly shit episode. We love our girly shit episodes. So yeah, Ever After. In case you didn't know that it was a Cinderella story, they conveniently put it in the title, Ever After, A Cinderella Story. John had never seen this movie before, by the way. What? I know, I had the same reaction. So this must have been an experience. It was. It was a bit of a culture shock. So one of the reasons we we picked this movie is not only is it a, a piece of pure comfort food for a lot of us, but also it's one of those movies that came out as a result of that sort of, that idea that we had at the time that we had to update and modernize fairy tales that we keep getting this itch for every couple of years in movies and television. And this was one of the ones that said, no, we need to make Cinderella arguably one of the most passive princess characters in, in well-known fairy tales. We need to make her a strong female character. Which, to be fair, they did an okay job. Yeah, it's it's passable. It's like a B minus. So this is this is gonna be a wild ride. I I just I don't know any good way to get into this and why it works despite having all these historical inaccuracies, except to get into it. Let's start with the Titanic way of opening. Uh, with in the future, there's an old lady and she's reminiscing on her youth while drinking chamomile. Although this this is not Danielle, but old, but her great granddaughter. This lady has invited the fucking brothers Grimm. To her castle. And she's like, I'm not sure what I think of your Cindergirl story. I want to point out that this character, this old lady, has the distinction of being the only character in this entire movie set in France who has a French accent. Keep in mind, this is a movie made about a European setting made in America. So it's all gonna be shitty English accents from here on out. This this is the title scroll for the movie. We have like, as, as the Brothers Grimm are rolling up, we have like all these names associated with the movie popping up. I want you to remember this because afterwards... There is another title scroll for the movie. And the Grand Dame is like, oh, well, you have to understand that Danielle was a very real person. Cinderella was a real story. And this is how it really happened. And look at this glass slipper. And look at this sketch by Leonardo da Vinci that does not in any way, shape or form resemble Drew Barrymore. How do you two always start the stories? Ah, yes. Once upon a time. And then we get our second title sequence as we flash back to the French countryside in the 16th century. And we, ha- we have even more of a carriage rolling through a field. This, this movie has so much carriages rolling through fields to kill time. This movie is two hours long. This movie has a lot of things that are just there to kill time, including whole plots. So we meet eight-year-old Danielle. Who is a spunky tomboy. Yeah, she looks like a girl in a nice dress. But she can still punch a boy. Which she does. I actually did kind of love this exchange where the little servant boy is throwing rocks at the window and she opens it. And he's like, you look like a girl. And she's like, that's what I am. Because she's getting dressed up all fancy because her father, who is some sort of merchant, I guess, is bringing home his new wife and his two new stepchildren. And she's very excited about getting to meet these three. Now, Danielle is very excited about this because she says that she has never had a mother, which is interesting because her connection to her mother is kind of 
wishy-washy throughout the entire fucking movie. Okay, so the idea is that Danielle was raised by her dad and her awful stepsisters were raised by her mom and her stepmom was raised by her mom. And there's this sort of like weird, uncomfortable dichotomy where being raised by a man is seen as somehow like better and more virtuous and less likely to result in you being evil. It's not a very persistent undertone throughout the movie, but it's there every once in a while and it's weird. A lot of it comes out because I think the whole connection to the mother is just clumsily handled throughout the whole movie. So it's hard to tell if this is intentional or if this is just reading the subtext that may or may not be like meant to be there. Anyway, none of that fucking matters because Angelica Houston is now in this movie and she is going to carry it to its conclusion, kicking and screaming. Angelica Houston, you can act in anything and I'd be happy. Except for the dead, I'm sorry. Why did you have to act in that? The carriage rolls up and the first one to come out of the carriage is little baby Marguerite, who looks up at the mansion and never have I seen such shade in the eyes of an eight-year-old. And then there's little eight-year-old Jack, well, like it's like seven-year-old Jacqueline. And then a gnarled hand grabs the side of the carriage and out comes Angelica fucking Houston, the Morticia Adams of our hearts. She can do more acting with her eyebrows than Drew Barrymore can with her entire body body in her entire career. Angelica Houston is basically the Vincent Price in this movie. She's the only real good actor, and she is here to chew the scenery as much as she freaking can, just so this movie will end, because she knows that it's all riding on her. Like, when you see posters for this movie, or you see newer DVD covers for it, the two top names are... Drew Barrymore, and Angelica Houston. The love interest doesn't even get anywhere near top billing. I love it. God, Angelica Houston, she's so good. She's so good. She's so good. And she gets introduced by her new husband, Danielle's dad, to all the servants. And then he says, my daughter's around here somewhere. And baby Danielle comes running around the corner covered in mud. And it turns out that uh, you should have seen the other guy. And then we do. She annihilated Gustav. And to his credit, what I like about the dad is that he's not embarrassed by this. He's just like, oh, I hope to present a little lady to my new wife, but I guess you'll do. Smooch. Danielle's introduced to the girls. There's, I mean, they're all child actors and they're not in the movie for very long, so they didn't have to be good child actors. So they're all just sort of like, hi, hello. And we see Danielle being uh, read to by her father. And apparently he brought back a book for her and it's Thomas More's Utopia. A bit of light reading for an eight-year-old. He even admits it's a bit thick for an eight-year-old, but whatevs. Apparently this is something that he does all the time. We learn later he reads to her in bed, but it's not like fiction or anything interesting. It's like philosophy and science are the two specific topics that are discussed. So uh, this is also when we find out that dad's going away in a little while and they argue over how long he's allowed to be away and they come down to a week. But it doesn't really matter because you know he's marked for death. He's too nice. But here's the thing. You would think that he was going to die on the trip. <laughs> no. So we get to the next morning. All the staff is lined up to see him off. He has like a special goodbye for his daughter. And then he leaves on his horse. And he has like a little hand tremor. And at this point, this hand tremor that he has, John's like, oh, you know, if you got a hand tremor at the beginning of Act One, he's going to be dead by the end of Act One. And I'm like, the end. He's going to be dead in two minutes. He rides off. Angelica Houston sends her daughters back inside and herself. And young Drew Barrymore is like, no, he always waves at the gate. It's tradition. And Angelica Houston's like, <laughs> And she heads inside. Drew Barrymore, meanwhile, runs to the side and is sitting there watching. He puts up his hand to wave. And then I found this out by sheer happenstance. Ten minutes on the dot. 
keels over off the horse. 10 1 0 0 0 is the time code. He doesn't even last more than five minutes. He's just fing dead. And he's lying there in the road, and we have this amazing focus zoom on Danielle that looks horrible, and I love it. It's one of those things that the 90s really loved of like the zoom in focus on the character as they're like, <gasps> so she runs out. Followed shortly by Angelica Houston. And as they're holding this dying man in their arms, he like basically ignores Angelica Houston in favor of turning to his daughter and saying, I love you, I love you, and then dies. Yup! Angelica Houston has such this amazing resentment on her face, and then she just starts sobbing over his dead body, screaming, don't leave me out here. You cannot leave me here. Baby Drew Barrymore, by the way, is just shaking the dead body and screaming, Daddy, wake up, which is right out of land before time. We do a time skip, helpfully reminded by our frame device narrator. Who disappears for most of the movie, by the way. She's like, oh, in many years past and blah, 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 another man would enter her life. A man who is in many ways still a child. A child who uses a bedsheet rope to get out of his bedroom. We meet Prince... Henry. Real person, by the way, married one of the Medici family and uh, died in his 40s from like a sword wound while fencing practice. This is why when women fenced, they would fence topless so that like bits of their shirt wouldn't get stuck in the wound and fester. Incidentally, I'm sad there's no topless fencing in this movie. Prince Henry is escaping out of the castle as his parents, the king and queen, march in and are like, you're gonna get married in an arranged marriage and that's the final word. Oh, you're not here. He's like in his 20s. I do not recognize this actor from anywhere. I do not know who is playing the prince. The way he wears his clothes, the way his hair is styled, he just looks like a live-action version of Derek from Swan Princess. We cut from the prince running away to Danielle lying on the floor of the kitchen in front of the fireplace, holding the book that her dad gave her before he died. Get it? She's covered in cinders from the fire! Now she wakes up, goes to do her freaking chores or whatever. She's collecting apples and she hears uh, horses in the distance and she's like oh crap and then someone comes riding by on what is identified as her father's horse that is an old horse so she picks up some of her apples and just starts flinging them at the rider and screaming about how he's stealing her father's horse she beans him right between the eyes this is the meat cute by the way this is the prince this is the thing that you have to have in all modern cinderella adaptations which is the princess and the prince meet by circumstance outside of the castle grounds so anyway the prince gets beaned falls off the horse throws back his hood and danielle immediately recognizes him and goes oh god i'm gonna die i just attacked the prince oh my god treason she's like please we have other horses i know i'm going to die and he's like you know what have some francs here's 20 gold francs don't tell anyone i came here bye and then he and scrays with the horse and danielle who to her credit is a bit more pragmatic about this is like gold so our next scene is the two grown-up sisters and more angelica houston Oh, boy. We have Marguerite, who is, like, blonde and beautiful and screaming about how her egg is soft-boiled and not hard-boiled, and also she wants bread. And then we go to Jacqueline, who is Jacqueline's Hollywood fat, which means that she's actually quite skinny, but she's got a roundish face, and she is constantly bullied for that. Yeah, like, there were so many times in the movie I just turned to John and, like, she's fat! That's the joke! Ugh. 
Anyway, at some point, Angelica Houston's like, wait, where's the salt? And we cut back to the kitchen where Danielle has just come in and announced that she's got money now. They can buy Maurice back, who's one of the servants. Yeah. Are you ready for a plot? Because it's not going to last long. This is our plot for the moment. That is basically our side quest that leads into the main quest. This is the prologue quest. Because apparently Maurice is the husband of one of the two remaining old servants. And he has been sold off to pay for the Baroness's debts. They actually mentioned Cartier by name, which Jacques Cartier was the guy who was basically running uh, French Canada for a while. Would not actually start his voyages to the Americas until 15 years after Leonardo da Vinci dies. So Danielle comes and brings the salt and is belittled by Angelica Houston because that's what she is in this movie. And my God, she's so perfect though. Because at this point we've realized Drew Barrymore does two things in this movie. One of them is every time that she emotes, she purses her lips into a thin line, tucks her head and kind of squeezes up like a lemon. John described Drew Barrymore's face in this movie whenever she's emoting is like a mummy doing a velociraptor impersonation. Yeah, she's also making an attempt at an English accent sometimes. And that's what I think is why she doesn't emote much in this movie, aside to do that like weird lemon thing, which only happens once in a while, because I think most of her mental processes, she's focusing really hard on doing that British accent and keeping it steady. It's basically Kevin Costner's accent from the Robin Hood movie. Really, it's unfair to put her in the same room with Angelica Houston. And we get some hilarious textbook emotional abuse. If there's one thing this movie does well, it makes Angelica Houston this really uncomfortable and believable emotional abuser. Anyway, we cut from that to a bunch of bandits attacking Leonardo da Vinci. I say bandits. Um, these are very, very clearly, and they're actually referred to by a slur later on in the game. These are very clearly Romany people. It's bad. Yeah, you know, it's the, it's the G word. One of the bandits steals a painting and Leonardo da Vinci is screaming at the prince to go and save the painting. Painting, and he's like, but the royal guard is like right here and I need to run. Oh God, okay, I guess I'm going after the painting. And guess what? Guess what the public consciousness knows of Leonardo da Vinci. But we're not there yet. First, we have a chase scene in which the bandit and the prince both go off a cliff and then the prince pops up again with the painting. Is that bandit just fucking dead? Yeah. It's that scene from Smokey and the Bandit, except one of them died. They even do the long term like, whoa, fall into the river. Anyway, he uh, brings the painting back to Leonardo da Vinci and says, I hope this was worth it. And uh, Leonardo says, a woman always is, as though he was not one of history's most prominent homosexuals. Yeah. This movie just kind of politely ignores that. I feel like the director of this movie should have just rolled in afterwards on like 1998 Twitter and been like, oh, by the way, Leonardo's gay. Where's my GLAAD award? I'm a revolutionary. Looking at you, JK Rowling. He enrolls it and it's the Mona Lisa. Which, it doesn't work. It's painted on wood and it's super small. You know what it looks like. It's fine. Leonardo da Vinci has is is been invited here by the King of France and he's going to die in three years. It's fine. Oh, and uh, also, I believe this is the scene where we discover that Prince Henry, because the Royal Guard is caught up with him, has a fat friend. 
Yep. So you know what's going to happen. I mean, if Prince Henry is Derek, then this guy is Brom. And we, anyway, we go to our uh, stock nerdy girl dresses up nice sequence. Because Danielle is here, she has decided, and we're told this over the course of this conversation, because this movie is trying to wrap up this particular plot line very, very quickly. So we can get onto the romance and... Danielle is going to use those 20 gold francs to do what she said. She's going to free Maurice, Belle's father. She's going to free Belle's father from Tony J, who's imprisoned him until Belle marries Gaston. No, sorry, wrong, wrong French story. No, she's going to dress up like a courtier in order to just get into the palace and negotiate the payment for Maurice to bring him back home. We also have that scene where she comes up from behind the screen and says, don't you dare laugh. And the boy's like, oh, but you look beautiful. But we have to do something with your hair. Anyway, we cut to the prince rolling up to the house and returning the horse. And Angelica Houston immediately rushes her daughters out to be like, this is Marguerite. Here's all her titles. Here's how important she is. And Jacqueline's here. They both burst out of the door at the same time. Like there's an explosion of dresses. So uh, the prince dips and we cut to Danielle running up to the palace on foot. In a big fancy dress. Okay, so the royal palace is apparently within jogging distance of this awful country house that the baroness hates. These two buildings are absurdly close to each other. Like, it's not like you've been sent out into the wilderness. You are literally like a couple of hours from the palace. You're fine. But it's not big city Paris. Danielle sees this cart with Maurice in it. It's like one of those really awful, like, shit-caked prison carts that Maurice is in and he's about to be dragged off and sent to the Americas. It's very convenient. He's just loaded into the cart as she watches. Yeah, and she just runs up in front of the horse, stops it, and yells, I'm gonna buy that man for 20 francs. And the driver's like, lol, no. And then she starts yelling at him. He starts yelling at her. And who wanders up but the prince? He's like, why are you yelling at a lady? And this is where we find out that Danielle is the 16th century version of that girl in a YA novel who's different and special because she reads literature. Remember when we said that Danielle's characterization is kind of a solid B minus? How come Danielle is not a uh, is not a noble? Because her mom is a lady. Her mom was apparently noble. Her dad had an estate. Which implies that he is at least a baron. Why is she a commoner? None of this makes sense. The important thing is there's drama because Danielle is extremely technically not a noble. She probably at least has enough status to be a courtier. So Danielle and the prince start yelling at each other. Danielle quotes Utopia at him about creating thieves and then punishing them. The prince is like, fine, let the old guy go. Which looking at this guy, he's like 100 years old. How much work was Cartier expecting to get out of this guy. So anyway, uh, after like the old guy is freed and she's like, meet me by the gate. And it says, oh, prepare the horses. And then she starts trying to escape the prince and he keeps following her. He's like, but you read a book. I have read a book. How do you read books? You're so different from all other girls. What's your name? She's like, nope, 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 nope. Fine. Here's my mother's name. Bye. I'm staying with a cousin. Bye. She just vanishes. She Batmans out. Yeah, we go back through the theater at this point, and Angelica and Marguerite are like, How come you weren't here? We had no idea the prince was stopping by. You did some wrong. You should have told us that he stole the horse. And how dare you? We struggled to make a good impression, but Marguerite managed to pull through. Yeah, because she's like, I may have hit him with an apple. Just really nailed him right in the head. It was kind of awesome. And then Maurice shows up, and Angelica Houston's like, What are you doing here? And he's like, I worked off. Your debt? I mean, my debt? And she's like, well, fine. And like, 
leaves. And that's the end of that scene. Yeah, there is a really cute bit where she comes home and Maurice comes with her and like his wife, one of the old ladies, sees him and like just sort of starts crying and laughing and runs up to embrace him. And Danielle apparently just put a lemon in her mouth because she just sort of does that weird shrinking thing again. It is. It is pretty cute. It would be so much better if the scene weren't only here to establish how good and pure Danielle is. Yup. Anyway, we go to the prince arguing with his parents over whether he should marry this like Spanish princess that they've arranged for him. He'd beg Leonardo da Vinci to convince his father and bring him into the 16th century so that he wouldn't have to have an arranged marriage and not marry for love. Oh, there's so much to unpack there. This does lead to the best exchange in the entire movie, which is the king says, you'll do what I tell you to or I'll strike at you however I can. And the prince is like, yeah, by doing what? And the king's like, I will simply deny you the crown and live forever. It's a good read. It's a really good read. So they come to the conclusion that they will postpone the Spanish engagement thing. For five days. They hold a ball in Leonardo da Vinci's honor. And at midnight that night, the prince has to announce his engagement to somebody. And it's a mask, by the way, for, for no good reason. So the Drew Barrymore can wear butterfly wings later. And then the queen has another amazing line, which is, choose wisely, dear. Divorce is only something they do in England. Aww. So Angelica Houston has this really awkward, flirtatious conversation with, like, the Nazi scientist from Captain America, who ends up in the TV. Oh, that's who that is. Yeah, where she learns about the ball and, like, the prince's agenda and stuff. She pays him off for information, but she also, like, he wants to f*** her. It's awkward. He gets a boner in every single scene he's in. Let's skip past most of this and go straight to the bees, shall we? Let's go to the bees. Oh my god. Okay, okay, so look. So look, they've got beehives. They've, they keep bees because it's a farm. They keep bees. And Danielle and one of the old ladies have these huge, you know, nets that with hats on them to keep, to keep the bees. They've got some smoke going on. But as soon as they have collected the honeycomb, they just lift up their nets. It's fine. It's fine. You don't want to, like, walk a little further away from the bees before you expose your flesh. It's fine. And they're just talking about the prince and Maurice and, like, bullshit and it doesn't really matter. It's just, there's a lot of scenes in this movie where it's basically the servants saying, you like the prince and Danielle saying, no, I don't. And then we go to um, them trying to figure out uh, Marguerite's dress for the ball. Marguerite's going through all her dresses and she hates all her dresses and Angelica Houston has an idea and she goes into what I guess used to be Danielle's room, opens up her hope chest and inside is this gorgeous dress that belonged to her mother. As well as some very fancy shoes with the movie has to point out because they're the slipper from the beginning and she has to wear them. Angelica Houston identifies these as Danielle's dowry. It was apparently her mother's dress. Danielle comes in as they're admiring this dress and they're basically guilted into saying, well, you get to come to the ball, dear. And um, because this is an emotionally abusive relationship, Danielle's me like, oh, well, thank you. And it's really uncomfortable. But at least to her credit, Jacqueline is disgusted with this, throws down the shoes, marches out, and they're like, oh, she doesn't want you to go. Which you'd think would be followed up on, but it's not. And then we have more evidence that this nowhere country estate is like ludicrously close to the royal palace when we have like Leonardo da Vinci and Henry like goofing around by the river and testing boat shoes. Yeah, real f***ing boat shoes. Like shoes that are boats. Meanwhile, Danielle is out truffle hunting with their pig, who is a very cute pig. 
And she decides to go for a swim fully clothed. Her hands are mildly dirty. So she's like, yep, fully clothed swim. This is a good idea I have. And there's actually a really great sequence where she's like swimming on her back and it's ephemeral and beautiful. And then you see like Leonardo da Vinci clomping across the water in his boat shoes. (laughs) He's like, oh, looks like rain today. And she screams because of course... She gets brought ashore. She meets Leonardo da Vinci vaguely in passing, but most importantly, Henry is there and he gives her his cloak because he has spent the whole scene being like, what if you don't know who the one is? Or what if what if God makes you and you, you're struck by lightning and and two people? And can I have two wives? He's having a meltdown on Live Journal. And there's this flirtatious moment and they basically bicker at each other, which is how you know it. It's true love. He tells her that uh, he's playing tennis with some dude tomorrow and she should come. At that point, the stepsisters come looking for her and she's like, oh, I gotta go and like runs. And he doesn't think it's weird. Well, he does think it's weird, but he doesn't think it's that weird. He's just like, why does she keep doing that? Why does this woman I keep harassing keep running away from me? I should pursue her more. Anyway, then my next note here says aggressive codpiece tennis. This tennis match has a lot of really aggressive codpieces. It also has a bunch of really aggressive women stuffing handkerchiefs into the prince's outfit, so he has to give them back to them later. Yeah, they are ready to rip his body apart. He falls through, like, the fence into the audience, and they are just, like, pawing at him. They are thirsty. Anyway, Marguerite picks up the ball and hands it to him. And there's like this weird sexual tension moment between them. Yeah, it's not ever really clear whether like there's actually some kind of sexual interest between them or if that's something that she's just like really hot and heavy for. Every time she does something sexual, he just kind of has this dumbfounded look on his face. I don't I don't know what's going on inside his head for these scenes. Question marks, alarms. And then we go to the palace market and we have some stock evil dudes rolling up to Danielle's booth at the market. And the important thing to realize is that the guy at the front of these who is going to sleaze all over Danielle in the scene. Thing one is he's called Monsieur Le Pew. Oh, it's better. His full name, Pierre Le Pew. They had the cojones to name this blatantly evil character who has no point in the plot. Aside to be a minor roadblock, they named him Pierre Le Pew. And thing two is I recognize this actor from the Dungeons and Dragons movie where he played the King of Thieves. I have a better one for you. Oh, no. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Pierre Le Pew, played by Richard O'Brien. Oh, my God. Who performed in Rocky Horror as Riff Raff. That's where I know him from. Holy shit. Oh, my God. Riff Raff's here, you guys. Oh, I'm so glad I could give that to you. Oh, my God. I did not realize. I didn't. I was just like clicking around like I this this dude is like such a weird character actor. I had to figure this out. But no, it's Riff Raff. This is him just chewing the scenery as hard as he can. In this one, he is aggressively heterosexual. He is heterosexual to a point where it's almost gay. And at one point he says, I may be twice your age, but I'm well endowed. And it's like, ew. Ew, ew, ew. Like someone just from off camera. It's his penis! I don't! It's, it means his penis! Anyway, after Pierre Le Pew, oh my god, I'm never gonna get over that name. After Pierre Le Pew dips, the prince comes by the booth and the servants see him first and go, <gasps> and then he turns to Danielle and she goes, <gasps> and throws a chicken in his face and runs. He is hanging out in the market with Marguerite, I guess, because she really wants to f*** him. I, I don't know why he has any attachment to her aside from being the other romance interest in the plot. And he also feeds her this cool, kicky new invention from Spain 
Spain called chocolate. Yeah, Spain. That's where that's from. Technically, Spain was the ones who brought it to Europe in like 200 years because they kind of kept chocolate to themselves forever. And it was all liquid. That scene's just kind of over afterwards. Yeah, they're just like, is there a third servant? Drew Barrymore, perhaps? And like, no. No, just the chicken. So we go to uh, Danielle brushing Angelica Houston's hair. Danielle talks about how she wishes she knew what her mother looked like. And Angelica Houston is like, I see so much of your father in you. Sometimes I can see him looking up from behind your eyes, you know, because your features are so masculine. It's almost a little GLaDOS. It's, wow. It's it's another one of those emotional abuse scenes that's like, wow. And that's also where she mentions that her mother was also emotionally abusive and manipulative. And then Danielle asks, like, did you love my father? And she's like, didn't really know him. I go away. I want to be alone now. And then we go to the servants finding a kite in a tree. We go quickly from that to Danielle flying said kite in a completely different location. Out in a field with a bunch of haystacks. I guess this is from Leonardo da Vinci. I guess this kite just ended up here. Danielle's talking about how she doesn't like the prince. Nuh-uh, I don't like him. Hey, check out this rad kite. And then Gustav, who's painting, is like, well, here comes the prince now. Maybe you can tell him how much you don't like him. And she hides behind a haystack with the kite still clearly visible. Hey, what's up? Do you know where the where Danielle is? Except I don't know what her real name is. And he's like, I, I don't, I don't, well, I don't. Why is Da Vinci's kite over there? And Danielle behind the haystack is like, shit, 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 and just sort of throws away the string, which is definitely going to fix her problem. And then Gustav is like, oh, she's staying over at that house that's the Baroness's house. And the prince is like, oh, cool, and runs off. And Danielle's like, you piece of shit. And he's like, you better run. And she does. And I swear to God, she's like the Usain Bolt of like French country girls. I do like this idea that they have that Danielle totally doesn't actually believe, but she keeps saying it that, well, actually, if he marries my stepsister, then they all move to the palace and I get to be left home with the estate and the people I love, which is actually a pretty cool idea. So Danielle manages to help, gets the, uh, the servant ladies to help her get into a fancy dress. And he invites her out to come read at this monastery that has a really badass library and she's like books i like books that's one of my character traits i'll go and she's like oh but i you know my weakness but i don't know yours and he's like isn't it obvious someone from off screen he wants to f you so we go to this precariously located monastery on the edge of a cliff but they actually um, admit a woman nah don't worry about it this is the thing with like this historical accuracy stuff if you try for a little bit of it then like all of the things that you did wrong just end up being more glaring whereas if you just sort of shrug then it ends up working a little better also known as knight's tale theory so they're talking about books and danielle is like really excited and tells about how you know her dad would read to her all these books on science and philosophy and the prince gets like verklempt for some reason that i can't quite determine i guess one of those lines is supposed to make him be like you teach me so much more and i know nothing none of danielle's lines actually seem like they would directly lead to that realization nothing seems to hit very close to home aside from this just sort of now it's time for the prince to feel there's so many moments in this movie that are like and now this character has to be here or say this thing without like really leading to like a logical emotional through line danielle has to be at the palace so she has to free maurice and then we're not going to talk about maurice anymore so uh after that the carriage just kind of fucking crashes 
We don't actually get to see the crash. We just get to see like the wrecked carriage. And they're like, oh, we'll go back to the monastery. And Tenhill's like, no, no, we won't. We're going to walk. It's a half day's walk from here back home. We're just going to hoof it. You think they would at least take like one of the horses from the carriage? And then here comes this movie's obligatory couple of action sequences. You know, the ones that they used a whole lot in the trailer. Danielle gets into her underwear to climb up into a tree to tell which way they're supposed to go because they got lost. There's this one line before the bandits come up where he's like, you're passionate, you read, you're smart. Is there anything you can't do? She's like, I can't fly. She's not like other girls, TM. And while she's up there, the prince is like surrounded by bandits. Then the entirety of these bandits stand around and watch the prince fight one of them. Let's fight him one at a time. It's only fair. Meanwhile, Danielle comes climbing down and this other bandit like starts to steal her dress. And she's like, oi, no, 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 no. Stop it right now. Stop. Stop. Put it down. She starts yelling at them that uh, she wants her dress back. And also, since they're depriving her of her escort, she wants a horse too. And the bandit guy is like, you can have whatever you can carry. And she's like, okay. And she goes and she picks up the fucking prince. It's a fireman's carry too. It's like the smart way to do it. It just starts walking off with him. And the bandits love this so goddamn much that they're like, no, no, wait, come back, come back. They're like, we'll give you a horse. And then they end up just like hanging out with them the whole evening. So there's actually kind of a legend about this once, if, if you guys have heard of it. I can't remember it exactly, but I remember there was apparently a warlord who came in and was like attacking or sieging a city. And um, the women came out and they were like, look, we'd like to leave. Is it okay if we leave and take some stuff with us? And the warlord was like, yeah, you can take yourself and whatever you can carry. So all the women went out and grabbed their husbands in their full military gear, picked them up on their shoulders and carried them out. And the warlord was so pleased by this that he told them they could stay and their city was theirs. It's probably just an urban myth and whatever, but I like it. This this whole thing with them hanging out with the Romani all evening. This is, by the way, intercut with like various scenes of Angelica Houston doing machinations and then getting home and being like, where's Danielle? But none of it really matters. It's just it's just there so that we have something to cut away from and then cut back to more of the prince and Danielle falling in love. By the way, one thing that has been mentioned a couple of times that we haven't really covered is this vaguely referenced subplot where a bunch of the stuff in the house is just going missing. Like candlesticks and stuff. And every time something goes missing, the Baroness is just like, well, that's just going to come out of your pay. And that's something that'll be like perpetually alluded to, but not in a really consistent way enough that we're sure it's supposed to be a main plot or not. But I think that happens like once or twice while we're here. Anyway, they quote books at each other and then smooch. And by the way, when they lean in for a kiss, Drew Barrymore goes in tongue first. I mean, I guess this is France and they invented French kissing. Also, how is her hair this perfect after all this stuff? Like she's been climbing trees, fighting bandits, getting hilariously drunk, and her hair is still perfect. I don't get it. So after that, we go to hungover Danielle. Which is the best Danielle, it turns out. She's just like, screw you guys, make your own breakfast. The prince is also like, wakes up his parents and is like, I want to make a university. In short order, like there's some other scenes in between, but in short order, we go to Marguerite trying on Danielle's dress because because Danielle was so rude, 
she doesn't get to go to the ball anymore. Because that was definitely on the table. Marguerite talks shit about Danielle's mom, and Danielle's like, catch these hands, motherfucker. Yeah, we have this whole freaking chase scene around the house, and it's one of the ones where the cameramen are actually following them. So there are points where the actors have to stop and make sure that the cameramen can catch up with them. And then Marguerite grabs Danielle's copy of Utopia and holds it in the fire and says, give me the freaking shoes and stop trying to punch me or else. So Danielle hands over the shoes and then Marguerite throws the book in the fire anyway because she's terrible, like cartoonishly terrible. And then she's been whipped. And we get uh, we get Jacqueline taking care of her back and applying salve and, and actually uh, speaking against her mother. It's interesting because she still does this thing where she's like, well, you brought this upon yourself. It's your own fault. But it was pretty cool that you did that. Why is she applying these and not one of the other servant ladies? Because we had to have this scene to establish that Jacqueline is capital G good. We also have this whole thing, like this whole day where Danielle's like, oh, I don't know what's come over me. Why am I talking like this? I don't know. Again, this is like, well, Danielle has to be this now. But we didn't really give her a reason or like change her character at all. She just has to say these words now. And now for something completely different in which Marguerite is having tea with the queen and has the most epic shiner, which she claims was as a result of her saving a baby from a carriage. Okay, this scene is actually real good. First off, because of that complete nonsense. Second, because the queen makes some light conversation about, oh no, this uh, this noblewoman that everyone's talking about, no one knows where she's from. And then she gives Danielle's mother's name. And Angelica Houston, who does more acting with her eyebrows than anyone else in this entire movie with her whole body, is just like, oh yes, she's staying with us, actually. Marguerite, you know her, the one you like to call Cinderella. And Marguerite just throws a fit. She stands up, she starts stomping and screaming and storming around. She composes herself, then sits back down, and she just sort of looks blankly at the queen. It's like, there was a bee. Which is actually really good. So then we go to Danielle and the prince meeting up in like these ruins that he likes to hang out in because he's like hashtag deep. Oh my god. It's like, oh, I grew up among these trees and blah, blah, blah. And Danielle is so very obviously sore, you know, from having her back whipped. He also was like, I have a purpose now. And it's this idea I came up with a couple hours ago. It's now my purpose in life to make this university. And my eyes keep going to his like codpiece with rings in it, I think. Like, every single shot just emphasizes the cod piece, and it starts to disturb me. Also, the prince has apparently not slept on over 24 hours because all good decisions are made when sleep-deprived. And Danielle's like, yeah, oh, jeez, like, I, I should probably tell you something, and I've had, like, hmm, and the prince is like, whatever, shut up, listen to me talk about you. I love you so much, and, like, something significant's gonna happen tonight, but I'm not gonna tell you what, you're amazing, and Danielle's like, <laughs> I don't want this to be happening right now. And also he tries to like kiss her and grabs her bag and she's like, ouchies, and pulls away. And she's like very finally saying, last night was the happiest night of my life. And then she just dips. You know, some maybe some mixed messages there. A lot. So Danielle gets home. And first off, we find out the dress is gone. We have this massive screaming fight between Danielle and Angelica Houston, which Danielle finally gets to act. She gets to scream. Drew Barrymore seems to have finally relaxed a little. Anyway, after the screaming fight, Danielle gets locked in the cellar. Because guess what? It turns out that this movie has been really bad at telling us what day it is or giving us any indication beyond this five-day thing. It turns out today is the day of the ball. No one told us. 
And we cut to um, the prince talking to the queen about Comtesse Nicole, which is like the name that Drew Barrymore has been going by at court. And the queen is like, oh, but she's engaged. Yeah, Baroness Angelica Houston told me she's engaged. And he's like, wait, what? What? Shit, wait, she was, oh god, yeah, she was trying to tell me goodbye and I was pouring my heart out to her. That must have been really awkward for her. This is like his only moment of self-awareness in the entire movie. And the problem is that, like, that moment quickly goes away to be like, but I'm embarrassed, but my feelings, nah. So we go to um, the stepsisters getting ready for the ball and Marguerite is a peacock. Angelica Houston is just... A thing. She just has a mask. I don't know what she's dressed up as anything. And they dress Jacqueline up like a horse. She's fat. And then they're like, well, well, the horse is one of God's noblest creatures. And she's like, you guys are assholes. We also see some of the other girls and one of them is dressed like a mouse. Duh. Anyway, they send Gustav off to tell the prince the truth. And Gustav is like, I, can- I literally cannot walk up to a prince and start talking to him. I will be executed for it. And they're like, well, you're a painter. Go talk to Da Vinci instead. And he's like, he is the greatest painter in the world. So we see him sneaking into the castle. The creepy dude that we've pointedly not talked about in this whole movie because every scene with him is the most uncomfortable scene. He's taking a piss. He's taking a piss against a wall because we have to see at least one person take a piss against a wall in a movie in the 90s. And Gustav is on the wall above him and like grabs a container full of horse shit and drops it on his head. He's dead. He's dead. He killed that guy. He killed him. We don't see him in the rest of the movie, do we? He died. He fucking died. They don't know how to deal with a head trauma at that point. He did. So Gustav gets into the ball. Because he stole the guy's clothes, by the way. Not just because he killed a man. Starts asking around for Da Vinci and you see him talking to this one guy and there's no audio, but the guy is very clearly making like a beard motion and pointing. In the direction that the guy is pointing, there are in fact two men with beards and Gustav walks up to the wrong one and faints. And the real Da Vinci turns around and goes, yes? Da Vinci is wonderfully blasé in this movie. So uh, we don't really bother with the conversation between Gustav and Da Vinci. We just have Da Vinci rolling up to the estate and helping Danielle out of the cellar. And Da Vinci looks at the door, removes the pegs from the hinges, and opens it that way. And one of the servants is like, that's pure genius. And he's like, yes, I shall be renowned throughout history as the man who opened a door. So he pulls her out and he's like, I'm your fairy godmother now. And she tries to be like, oh, oh, but senor, oh, a bird and a fish can get married, but where would they live? And he's like, I'm going to make you some butterfly wings, bitch. Let's get moving. It's a metaphor. Leonardo da Vinci, I invented body glitter. So we cut back to the ball where we find out there's this one asshole who showed up with like these huge antlers that stretch out like three feet from either side of his head. Everybody at that party hates him. He is knocking things over. He is braining people. There's one guy wherever we see this throne set up of like the king and the queen on a little platform. There's always a dude just hanging out on the steps and he's never named. He's never referenced. No one makes eye contact with him ever. Is he like the fool or what? He bothers me a lot. And then we have the scene where like Jacqueline's at the buffet and she's dressed like a horse and like the prince's fat friend is at the buffet and he's dressed like a horse. And of course, they're the two fat characters, so they have to fall in love. And also like furries, maybe? Yeah, they make sexy whinny noises at each other. There's a Myrna scritch in there, I'm pretty sure. The prince gets up on the dais and starts to announce his engagement. And just as he's saying who he's going to announce his engagement to, Danielle shows up in body glitter and fucking butterfly wings. She's got like rhinestones glued onto her face. This is not period accurate makeup. And she whispers to herself, breathe, just breathe. 
Which is the thing that they use in all the trailers. So the prince immediately runs up. Actually scrambles, like unceremoniously, just like shoves people away and practically trips as he runs over to her. He's like, I thought you were engaged. She's like, I'm not engaged. The queen was misinformed. And he's like, oh, cool. I'm not going to let you explain anything else in order to create artificial drama later on in the movie. And by later on in the movie, I mean in like two minutes. I would like to explain myself. Nope. So he leads her up. He doesn't even get to like make a speech about who he's engaged to. And there's no like... Like, stop! There's none of that. It's just straight up because this movie needs to get to all the beats as fast as possible. Halfway to the freaking king and queen, in comes a furious Angelica Houston. Who straight up rips one of her wings off. It's a metaphor! And Angelica Houston's just like, this isn't a noble woman. This is straight up one of my servant girls and or my stepdaughter. She lied to you the entire time. Aren't you angry about that? And the prince is like, yeah, I am angry about that. Despite the fact that she was clearly trying to explain something to me earlier and I ignored her completely. She lied to me! My feelings! This is like that time that woman put on makeup and looked different. How dare she seduce me to try to get my seed? So yeah, this this goes about as badly as it possibly could. Right up to her, like, calling him Henry and him saying, you will address me as your highness. You're a commoner. I hate you. And she just, like, runs off crying. Oh yeah, it's pretty great. The pacing in Cinderella movies is always really f***ing weird because the thing that should be the start of the third act, which is to say, the ball, instead has to happen at the middle of the movie to leave room for, like, all of the post-ball shenanigans. So, like, she breaks into tears and runs away and no one's pursuing her. No one's pursuing her, but she trips, falls, gets up, and then leaves a slipper behind because she's supposed to leave a slipper behind even though he clearly knows who she is. And Da Vinci sees her leave the slipper behind. And he takes it to Prince Henry, who's like, Prince Henry is a complete shit, film at 11. And Leonardo Da Vinci's like, she is your match. And he's like, I'm born into privilege and that carries certain responsibilities and to she's like horse shit and then basically tells him you don't deserve her puts the shoe on the parapet which immediately means that we have to have dramatic rain and danielle makes it home and it's pouring and her dress is ruined which is apparently the same dress that her mother wore so i guess someone else just hid that and she grasps her shoe and sits down and doesn't really have an ugly cry which it seems like this should be the moment when you have an ugly cry but no she has a pretty cry and this is the point at which the Baroness goes from realistically abusive parental figure to cartoonish supervillain. She comes up and basically taunts Danielle in the garden about how, oh, the prince is going to come by to propose to Marguerite probably and we're going to get everything we want and I'm going to be the mother of the queen. And Danielle's like, you won, please leave me alone. We do get another moment where Danielle gets to actually act a little, which again, she basically acts when she's screaming. And it's like, is there one point when you ever loved me? And Angelica Houston is like, how can one love a pebble in their shoot. Ow! So, Riff Raff is here. And uh, apparently he's returning all the stuff that Angelica Houston sold from the house, which, yes, this was all Angelica Houston selling stuff and then yelling at the servants for stuff being gone. Why, though? Doesn't matter, because Riff Raff has returned all this stuff in exchange for Danielle. Yep. That's where this movie's going. And again, Riff Raff has barely been in this movie. He is here to add a sense of danger in the third act. Yep. It's not even a B plot or a C plot. This is a D plot that suddenly is like the focal point. It's not enough that the prince shows up to apologize. We have to have a sequence where she uh, escapes a possible rape first. Anyway, it's the day of the wedding and Marguerite's not being proposed to. He's 
going ahead with the Spanish merger. She is named in here as Princess Gabrielle. She is named in the credits of Princess Gertrude. It's good. She's just the Spanish princess. And she is not happy. She's sobbing so loud. It's comical crying. She is like pleading in Spanish, God, please, please, no, God, please, no. It's, oh, God. She's crying so loud, it's actually hard to hear the priest. Henry just sort of looks over at her and starts laughing and is like, I know exactly how you feel. Kisses her on the cheek. And Henry just books it. He just runs. It's worth noting that in this scene, Angelica Houston is in mourning dress and it's hilarious. It is real good. So we go to Henry rolling up to Danielle's house and finding out that she's been sold to Monsieur Le Pew. Jacqueline is here and gives him that news. And then Henry very dramatically states in a real voice that real people use, tell no one of our meeting as all will be revealed in due time. This is basically Henry planning the most epic prank of all time. And then we we go to Danielle at Monsieur Le Pew's house and oh boy. She is actually chained. I don't think we ever actually see the chain, but there's definitely the foley of one. He just starts doing that thing where he creepily feels and then smells her hair. I want to point out that the touching and the sniffing of hair is a signature move of this actor's because he did it in the Dungeons and Dragons movie too. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm pretty sure he did it to Magenta in Rocky Horror. So she grabs the knife that he has at his waist, uh, points it at him, and then grabs one of the swords that she has been brought out on this main table to, like, polish or something. So she threatens to kill him, and then she just sort of walks out. And Henry arrives, and he's like, I came to rescue you, and also, I'm a jerk, I guess. I brought you this shoe. It's been squashed flat in my pocket, and frankly, it's a miracle it hasn't been broken. And then he is like, Danielle, forgive me. It's worth noting that throughout this entire scene, there's just a trash fire in the background burning for no reason. And then she turns around, and it turns out she never actually needed an apology from him, because the only takeaway she actually has is that he called her by her name and not the name that she had given him. God, okay. And then she agrees to marry him and there's this great big kiss and hug scene. And then we cut away to Danielle's house and Angelica Houston. Jacqueline is like, she's in on this now. So she's like, oh yeah, uh, the princess he was leaving his wedding was like, serves me right for not agreeing to marry your sister. And Marguerite's like, ooh. Yeah, they look at each other and start shrieking. Brom shows up and says, the royal family would like to see you guys right away. Dress nice. And they're like, oh, we'll dress nice. And then like the two fat characters, quote unquote fat characters in the movie look at each other and wink. Which frankly, I wish there were more like in jokes between fat characters in movies. Of course, I wish there was usually more than one fat character per movie. And thus begins the most elaborate, self-indulgent payback fantasy of this entire movie. So they arrive the whole court is in session, like all the courtiers are here. Which is surprisingly small, by the way. Yeah, it's a teeny tiny room. They knew the set was going to be in the movie for two minutes, so they didn't put much effort into it. And they like glide into the room. Angelica Houston might literally be gliding. It's incredible. And the king's like, did you or did you not lie to the queen's face? And she's like, oh shit. Uh, I would do anything for the love of my daughter. And Marguerite's like, I'm going to turn on you now. Oh, man. Marguerite just starts shrieking. It's like the most shrill thing ever. And it's really, really good. And they start fighting. And then the king turns to Jacqueline is like, are they always like this? And Jacqueline's like, sometimes they're worse. And so uh, Angelica Houston and Marguerite are sentenced to transportation unless someone will speak up for them. And then we go through the entire court and everybody's staying completely silent. And oh, man, Angelica is like, <laughs> lots of. Lots of phrases absent today. 
when Danielle from behind Angelica Houston says, I will speak for her. They've been secret married because the prince is like, let me introduce you to my wife. It's weird that this movie doesn't have a wedding scene in it. They secretly got married behind the scenes. I guess they had everybody gathered for that wedding anyway, so they just kind of kept them around. Oh man, it's a real pretty look though, you guys. It's a pretty dress. She's got a crown and everything. It's a good look. This is the speech that every single bullied girl wishes she could give to her bullies. She, she's dangling like this incredible power she has over Angelica Houston. It says, from this day forward, I will not think of you ever again, but you will think of me every remaining day of your life. And Angelica Houston's like, and how many would that be? She's canny enough to be like, how long am I going to live? And they are sentenced to work in the palace laundry. Danielle is like, afford her the same courtesy she showed me. And then both Marguerite and Angelica Houston bicker and argue in the laundromat. They're hit with laundry and then they both fall into a gigantic vat of indigo. They probably just ruined that, right? Yeah, and indigo is the most expensive, so congratulations, ladies. Go to uh, Da Vinci revealing his sketch of Danielle that also immediately looks 300 years old. Even the prince is like, that doesn't look like her at all. <laughs> it's almost like we didn't think about this. And then there's like some schmoopy stuff about how Danielle's life is so much better and blah, 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 blah. You're blah. supposed to be charming and we're supposed to live happily ever after. And then we get our last line of the movie, which is from our narrator, you know, the one from the beginning. It's understandable if you've forgotten she exists. And while they did live happily ever after, the important thing is that she lived. And then we have a 90s power ballad song that lasts the entire duration of the credits. So yeah, that was Ever After. A movie that is not historically accurate in the slightest. And yet... It's a feel-good movie. It's a comfort food movie. It's a catharsis for every little girl who has, like, ever been bullied by someone in their life. The idea that you can still be loved and find love and get back at your bullies in the most hilariously elaborate way possible. Which is probably, like, the whole point of sort of the staying power of the Cinderella narrative, right? That you can be put upon but still be valued and find love and be better than the people that bullied you. And you can also still totally enact your revenge fantasies really brutally. And that a whole country will be behind you. Okay, so clearly this movie has a lot of things that it didn't quite put together in the right order. It's a little sloppy. It's a little shoddy. For all it's crowing about being the real story, it doesn't really bother with it that much. And the thing is, you don't really need to to tell a good schmoopy story. This is basically the girly equivalent of one of those action movies where the nerdy guy gets to save the world and get the girl. Now, I'll definitely say that Ella Enchanted is probably a better version of this in every way in terms of like giving Ella a bookish personality and making her and the prince bond over their mutual intellectual interests. Except Ella Enchanted was also like, you know what? Magic can be in this and it can still be fine. You don't need to make Leonardo da Vinci Leonardo da Vinci being the fairy godmother is somehow more unbelievable than actual magic. Making your movie historically accurate doesn't necessarily make it better. And definitely the parts that make this movie work aren't the historically accurate ones. It's a character story. That's what actually makes it function. It doesn't matter whether or not there's like magic or not. Uh, unless it's Ella Enchanted the movie, in which case... Ugh. I love the book. The movie. I like both, but for different reasons. But I also like trash. 
I Will Fight You comes out just about every six weeks on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and YouTube. You can also find us on Twitter and Tumblr at GemJamCast and thegemjam.tumblr.com, uh, which is our main podcast uh, where we talk about Gem and the Holograms, which you probably know us from, but there you go. It's a good podcast. You should check it out. If you want to support us financially, you can find us at patreon.com slash thegemjam for a couple months a month. You can support both I Will Fight You and the Gem Jam, as well as our other upcoming projects. Uh, in the meantime, though, you can catch I Will Fight You next time, where we will be talking about Kingdom Hearts with our first guest from the show, a friend of mine, Shannon Maynard. She's also going to be on another podcast talking about Kingdom Hearts full-time. We'll plug that more when it comes to it. So join us next time, where our fact will be explaining Kingdom Hearts requires outsourcing. And until next time, dear listeners, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. Oh.